Welcome to Access Ideas. This is Yana, and today I'm speaking with someone who connects podcasters and podcast editors around the world. Steph Puccio is an American expat who has lived outside the United States for the majority of the past 20 years. She produces the Geopaths podcast, which features international conversations about niche topics like expat life, language, books, coffee, and of course, podcasting. She's also the founder of the Global Podcast Editors Community, which hosts live chats on YouTube, and she publishes an information pack newsletter on Substack. Her mission is to connect podcast editors so that they can learn from each other and in turn, help podcasters get their voices and stories out into the world. Steph has a unique perspective on podcasting, and I think you'll feel energized by her enthusiasm, curiosity, and creative approach. We explore her international adventures as an expat podcaster in multiple countries, and we also talk about how to find the right format for content, whether audio or video. We also highlight tips on how to connect globally with others to create a sense of community and belonging. And with that, I bring you Steph Fuccio. Steph, welcome to Access Ideas. Where are you joining us from today? Oh, uh, right now I'm in Bucharest, Romania. It's about three and a half hours from Transylvania. I understand you have an extensive list of countries you've traveled to, lived in, uh, even more impressively. Do you keep a tally or is it just, it's just a guess, best guess? Uh, I don't even try to guess. I don't know at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> Part of the part of my expat life was definitely planned and intentional, and since 2020, that has not been so true. So there's yeah, there's there's a mix of uh, a lot of stuff going on in my in my overseas adventures, <laughs> adapting to circumstance. Yeah, yes. exactly. And I understand you first became uh, an expat through teaching abroad, teaching English. And you saw that as a means to actually live in a country outside the U.S. and experience a culture other than your own. And when you did that, were you expecting it to lead to a life of global adventure and travel? Or was that something that you thought, I'm going to do this for a short time and then I'm going to come back to the United States? Um, Option three. I really wanted to find a place outside the U.S. where I fit in. I was really not... I've never fit in in the U.S. I never felt like it was, not that it wasn't my culture, but I've always felt like different and weird. And like I knew so many people growing up who seemed to be proud of or seemed to just readily adapt uh, like regular things that Americans are supposed to like or just do. And I always didn't. And so I was like, (laughs) okay, so where is that place? Where is that place? Where can I find it? And so I was hoping I would find that place when I went overseas. Um, And (laughs) I, I think it's just for me at this point, it's, it's not being in the U.S., which is the most comfortable because no matter where I am outside of the U.S. as a non U.S. place, that, explains why I feel out of place in that place and that's okay but it doesn't actually matter as much which place it is does Mm. that make sense that's kind of nonsense isn't it (laughs) um I think to me it sounds a bit like you like exploring new spaces because you can find a way to adapt to that space and enjoy it appreciate it fit in in under your own terms 
And there's no cultural pressure to be like the culture there because everyone understands that you're from outside of that country. You're not expected to align. That makes sense. Yeah. So that's that's what that is exactly it. Yes, (laughs) exactly. The cultural pressure is gone because it's like, well, you have an American passport. You grew up there, so you're clearly not going to be one of us anytime soon. And I'm like, great. So I can just be me, and it's fine. (laughs) That's funny though, because I'm wondering, have you ever been made to feel especially American simply through other people's assumptions about you? Oh, in every place that I've lived. Interesting. Interesting. Oh yeah. Yeah, I am the most American when I'm not in the U.S. I am not at all considered American when I'm in the U.S. (laughs) I can relate so deeply to that. I've never felt more Canadian than when I travel. It's always when I travel that I realize, oh, that's like whether I'm apologizing profusely or trying to be very polite and avoid confrontation. Mm -hmm. It's there's little cultural things that pop up that remind me that yes, indeed, I'm (laughs) I'm Canadian. So um, like what? Uh, well, a good example is when I visited the Netherlands and I asked the concierge, I, I agreed to the concierge at a hotel we were staying at and I said, oh, hello, how are you today? And she looked at me like I'd asked her a deeply personal question, borderline offensive, and she said, <laughs> to be honest, not good. And I said, oh, well, I, I'm so sorry. I, I hope your day gets better. And Aww. after I picked my jaw up off the floor, I realized well, that's a perfect example of Mm-hmm. over familiarity in Europe where there's this assumption that, you know, you don't ask me personal questions because you don't know me. Um, whereas, of course, in North America, it's a means of connection and it's just a way mm-hmm. of lubricating social transactions and ordinary interactions. So that was such a funny moment for me because it really drove home the fact that in spite of the fact I'm the child of immigrants from the Netherlands, I am indeed much more North American. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> How about you? Have you had recent moments or examples like that? Oh, um, probably all the time. Uh, my husband is from a small town in uh, in Idaho, and he ha- is much more of the very friendly American than I am. I, I do tend to go more like city face when I'm meeting new people or going to new places for the first time. And here in Romania, it is more of the Eastern European, mm. uh, not so friendly face in most situations until you get to know someone. And and he is still walking up to, you know, whoever at the cash register or in a store we're going to. And he's like, oh, how are you doing? It's similar to what you were talking about, but like super boisterous and smiley. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of sitting there with my, you know, I grew up in New York City face going, oh, no. Oh, no, this is going to end horribly wrong. <laughs> and just watching um, them not change their facial expression at all and not even answer and then, like, just take the product from him and move on with their day. <laughs> <laughs> and they probably think, oh, that's that's an American. <laughs> yeah. But for me, okay, I probably should have answered that in my – I was stalling because what you said actually triggered that memory in me. Um but for me, it's it's space, mm-hmm. uh, like distance around me. There are cultures that I've lived in, and this is probably one of them <laughs> where I am right now, where there is like zero personal space. Um, unless there, actually, no. I, I literally on a daily basis have people run, like walk into me. Like wow. not accidentally, but like you're in my path and I'm going straight and I don't know you, so you don't exist. And I literally have to like kind of dodge people everywhere in, in, in like every store and even on the street, like everywhere. Cause I'm just like, oh my gosh, I'm in your way. <laughs> <laughs> Obstacle course. Like there's just, 
Yeah, there's just like no personal space. And unless you know the person, they're not there. And it's just, it's something. Like I got hit with a tag yesterday in a store from the woman who was working right next to me as I was looking for jeans. Mm-hmm. And she just went, boom, and it flicked right in my eye. And oh. I looked at her and she just, she just kept going. It's oblivious. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, so just different. It, it's, not, it's not rude. It's not polite. It's just how things are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have an extensive body of work. You are an icon in the podcasting community. You are well known as a connector, you know, bringing podcasters together. Well, (laughs) a legend. (laughs) How about legend? (laughs) I see. You're too kind. I see the impact that you're making on on groups like the Global Podcast Editors and certainly the Geopats podcast. I've enjoyed listening to that immensely. And I'd like to understand how you transitioned from teaching English maybe some of the other work that you've done into podcast editing and using that as as currency essentially to to work wherever you find yourself. I love when people ask me a question similar to this because it sounds like the narrative that I have put out there or that that is out there makes it seem like a logical progression <laughs> and it was Absolutely a messy, accidental (laughs) thing that I'm very glad happened. (laughs) But it was very much, though, not totally intentional. So I was, I taught English until 2017. And that was then my husband and I, our last round, our last round in in China. Uh, The last time we were there for three years from 2017 to literally January 1st, 2020. Oh, the timing on that. Right. Just amazing. Um, (laughs) And during those three years, I was doing language testing, not teaching. And so I had no prep, no grading. I would just go to work and go home. And that was like a whole new world to me. And I had time for these things called hobbies. And so (laughs) I know I was reading more. I was listening more. I was going to the gym. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I was talking to a friend of mine about podcasts because we spent hours on the phone comparing podcasts. And she said, okay, so tell me now why you don't have one yet. (laughs) And I didn't have an answer for her. And I was like, well, I do have the time now. Maybe I should play with one. And then it began. (laughs) And so while I was doing the job that wasn't taking up a lot of my headspace for those three years, I was just going crazy, like recording like tons of stuff, meeting other podcasters, like doing conferences. Like I was just, I was so excited to have this gigantic online community Um, because my community in Shanghai, I had some friends, but uh, the Chinese language was, no matter how far I was getting with it, was impenetrable. It was Mm. really hard to get into local culture and meet a lot of people and have a lot of local community. So I was so excited to have a big online community, especially, as I'm sure you know, a big online community of people who are very curious. Podcasters are like educators with a microphone. They love learning and sharing. And I was just like a kid in a candy store. I feel seen. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because it's so true. It's like, yeah, we don't have the desks and the, you know, the, um, not sabbaticals. What is it called? Tenure. We don't have tenure and all that kind of stuff. But I feel like we have a lot of the same curiosities, if not if not more. Oh, yes. If not more. And we're not restricted yeah. by curriculum and 
and all of the limitations of various school systems or administrations. Exactly, exactly. So when we decided to move to Europe January 1st of 2020, I was going to get, it was very logical, I was going to get this marketing job that would lead into some podcasting job somewhere, hopefully in Germany, because that's where we were going. And then I would slowly transition my podcast to, like I would clean it up and I would make it like marketable and that would be another path or another means of making money or what have you. But I was definitely going to get into podcasting somehow Mm -hmm. in a roundabout way through marketing in Germany. And then we know what happened in March and all that kind of fell apart. (laughs) Did you take some time to bake sourdough bread and and get your at-home fitness on point? (laughs) <laughs> no, we were in a, a terrible apartment with a, that we, because my husband was doing a boot camp and I was taking language classes and we were like in the neighborhood we wanted to be in, but in a really bad apartment that had almost no kitchen, almost no light and awful furniture. Oh no. Because <laughs> we assumed we would just be sleeping there because we'd be so busy doing all this other stuff, building community, getting jobs, doing all this stuff, right? So then we were stuck in there like 23 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> And so to make a long story short, I had panic attacks, anxiety, like full on panic attacks. I was just like a complete and other wreck. And I did the only thing I knew how to do, which is I kept podcasting because voices and people are what keep me grounded in this world. Hmm. And I just literally pushed through, found a lot of resources online, went through a lot of therapy, and I just kept producing stuff. And I started Podcast Review Day because I needed more community in my world. Nice. (laughs) And in the middle of all of this, because it was 2020 and other people were stuck at home, people started to contact me and say, hey, do you know anybody that can edit my podcast? And I was like, well, I've got time until I find a real job. (laughs) (laughs) And then it turned uh, into my real job the because decision. Yeah. Yes. It was just it was such a blessing in disguise, but it was it was a nightmare at the time, but it turned out really well. Like I can't imagine having gotten any job that would have been as enjoyable as what I'm currently doing, except for if I've got a job doing this for a company. That's the only other <laughs> amazing thing that would have been better. Yeah. Wow. And what I really appreciate about your perspective is you have a strong point of view about what you want to edit, what you don't want to edit. I was listening to your interview with Matt Medeiros and I commented on Twitter about this. Thank you. How succinct and insightful it was. I loved what you said about you don't just want to help people flesh out ambiguous ideas. You want people to come to you with a goal in mind, whether it's a business podcast or community engagement or public service. And you want to dive deep because you're very concerned with quality. You're not just going to haphazardly do the basics and throw it back. You you really are committed to quality. So maybe you can talk a little bit about your perspective on the editing process and coming at it from somebody who didn't really edit at all, as you once were, to today, where you have strong beliefs and vision about how you edit and and what you want to focus on. Hmm. I think it took me a while to see the connection between language teaching and editing, but once I saw it, and I think it actually came out in an interview because all brilliant moments come out in conversation, um, is that it's a natural extension of 
communication and teaching communication and the importance of story. Like all of those things have really enveloped me from the beginning, the beginning of time or the beginning of Since Steph, the dawn of time, as every essay should, yeah. should start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was either like me being a bookworm as a kid, me wanting to write as a teenager and, and in my 20s, and then me teaching language in my 30s and 40s, like language and communication and not so much voices until podcasting. Oh, except I did play with like tape recorders and voices and making sounds and stuff when I was a kid, but I lost that. Interesting. Because there weren't good jobs available when I was, you know, in my 20s and 30s in that area. So I, I veered away from that enjoyment. Um, but podcasting brought me back to that, but still with that strong, that strong communication and story component. And I think that's a really huge part of what I enjoy and what I think is the most attractive part for listeners as well as podcasters of the medium itself. I mean, there's nothing like voices. It's such a different way of communication. There's so many layers of meaning that come through in people's voices. There's just nothing else like it. Okay. I'm going to strongly agree with you there because I feel very much the same. However, I'm often baffled by the preference for video that I see. Mm -hmm. um, when I sense podcasts are very intimate, I can walk around and be very mobile while I'm listening. I don't feel there's the distraction of the visual. Now, some people would say, mm -hmm. oh, no, the, the visual is enriching and it enhances the message. And maybe that's true. But there's something so special about audio that makes me an eternal fan of the podcast or whatever audio mm -hmm. format will you know, podcasts may evolve into one day. Now, partly it's, I think I grew up, well, I grew up without TV. So I think partly it's that I was always used to listening to the radio and, and even audiobooks. But I'm wondering if you... Me too. Oh, nice. Nice. That's cool. That's, that's another thing we have in common. I'm curious about what your thoughts are with, with audio and the value of audio production, which I think is mm -hmm. becoming more accessible versus the assumption that so many people seem to still have that video is the way to go, pivot to video. And and I don't agree with that pivot necessarily. And I'm, I'm wondering if you feel the same or similarly. I, I love both and I don't think we have to choose. And actually when I started my first podcast, I also started a YouTube channel. Now the difference is <laughs> the skills that I have increased in audio are like gigantic and the skills I have increased in video are like maybe a quarter of that <laughs> because I am much more of a of an audio person than a video person however because of the mess that is podcast discoverability and the comment oh the comment the lack of commentability is commentability a word that should be a word the lack of the ability to leave comments for yeah. podcasts yeah I know what you mean it's it's yeah. An engagement deficit. There's there's a lack yeah. of ability to reciprocate engagement and respond quickly. I mean, if you're a podcaster, you have to have an additional source of communication, whether it's mm -hmm. a website or most people have the social social media accounts. But that YouTube reference that you bring up, of course, that's a great example of how you can put out content and people can comment on it immediately and you can have those conversations or that engagement. Even so, I don't think it's for every podcast. I think there are definitely a lot of podcasts that 
to have, okay, because there's the static image videos, which just has like the logo and whatnot. And then there's the motion ones that have like maybe people talking or animations or what have you. And I think the motion ones definitely are content specific. It's like for ones that are super sensitive, very emotional, maybe you want some people to be anonymous. Of course, having people's faces in there is not going to be the common in every video. Why would you do that? That's that's stuff that probably needs to be anonymous and needs to be just in our minds. But but it could still have a static. Yeah. Static video. But I, I just it's yeah. For me, I, I do love video for mm mm. I do love video for things that are visually appealing to watch. Mm-hmm. I do think that a lot of podcast videos aren't necessarily sexy or inviting or just like visually stimulating. However, I do think that the discoverability and the, the yes. ability to comment is so much better that it it feels like not a must, but like it could help. And so why not try if it fits the time and the category and the content? And those are the main things, I think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Do you have an opinion about what the YouTube direction will, how it, will, how it might impact? <laughs> so YouTube will now yeah. host, as I understand it, most podcasts mm-hmm. automatically. The discoverability element is critical. I would say that's a huge mm-hmm. piece because as you know, YouTube is very easy. It's an easy way to access related content and have it automatically you know, stream. It's, it, you don't have to actually source it out. So mm-hmm. how do you think that might impact the world of podcasting or podcasters in general in terms of how they think about content or create content for audiences? Hopefully it expands audiences, but as far as the content goes, I, I there's nowhere to go but up. I mean, I, I feel like on some levels we've kind of gotten content stuck. People love narrative podcasts and people love interviews and there's not and, and audio dramas are getting more and more popular, thank goodness. But there isn't a lot of other types of formats. And so who knows? Maybe expanding out to video might get some video folks to come into the space and do things differently. I really don't know. I I don't live in the space where I think video is going to kill audio. Mm-hmm. I think we've had that discussion with two mediums fighting each other like every time. Every time there's a competition or a new medium, it's always like, a, which one are we going to pick? It's like <laughs> all of them. <laughs> TV still exists. I don't know why, but it does. <laughs> are you a TV watcher? Do you watch streaming services much? I watch TV on computer and my mm. phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no. We, we, we were here a month before we realized we actually have cable TV in this apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Like we're so used to using our mobile devices that we're like, oh, oh, wow. We have like five movie channels. I know it's such a different world even compared to five or 10 years ago when TV was still the go-to, I I would say. And I've been listening to podcasts for at least 15 years or so. So I was listening Mm -hmm. to some of the early podcasts out there and I just loved this ability to listen to amazing conversations or comedians drama and and walk around and do my thing and you know, do chores mm-hmm. without having to <laughs> interrupt my listening. Do you, <laughs> do you have these moments where when you walk by a place when you were listening to a really impactful moment in a podcast, you remember the podcast moment? 
I do. I do. Yes. And I didn't <laughs> know that was a thing, but you've articulated it perfectly. It's it's like landmarks and spaces become imprinted by yeah. memories of strong emotion or insight yes. experienced through yes. audio. Yes. Completely. Mm-hmm. I, yes. I can relate. <laughs> we need to give that a name because that happens to me so often. So often. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm sure it can't be that uncommon because it makes sense. We're designed to experience our senses simultaneously Mm -hmm. and remember things based on strong emotions. So, yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? Pod place? Episode place? Maybe pod place. (laughs) Pod place. Do you have any pod places? Yeah. (laughs) Pod places. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to think about that one. I'm going to have to think about that one. I'm curious too about your thoughts about trends in podcast production. I think you mentioned a couple of solid go-tos, you know, narrative, dramatic narrative, and interviews. Those are popular. I hear variations on that. I think that mm-hmm. might recall the olden radio plays of the 30s and the 40s. And I love mm-hmm. that. I love that that is coming back. Yeah. Are there any other trends that you're excited about? There's a pretty big category of like health and wellness. Yes. Like I've started to... Years after going through a panic attack course, I've discovered meditation podcasts. Like, where was this three years ago? I'm sure it was there, but I didn't look for it. But now I've discovered this whole slew of like nature, water podcasts, meditation for women podcast. Like there's so many meditation podcasts now and nutrition podcasts and stuff about menopause and all kinds of things. And I'm like, this is amazing. (laughs) I love Tara Brock. Uh, and um, Dan oh, Harris, they both have yes. some good meditations right on there. Yeah, Dan Harris, got it. <laughs> Tara Brock, I've actually got my husband hooked on Tara Brock, and there are some stressful moments where we both look at each other and go, 15 minutes, let's go, Tara." Like it's, she's become a verb in our house. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so there's I don't, and there's science ones, there's education ones that are becoming more popular. Apparently, there are education podcast conferences now too. No way. Like there's so many different kinds. Yeah. I don't know. Are there any, is there anything that doesn't exist in podcast form that's in other mediums? I also think DIY, that's where YouTube shines. So changing Mm -hmm. a battery on your smoke detector, whatever it may be. Yeah. It's so nice to have that video. Yes. And the audio description just probably doesn't hold up as strongly to that. So I'd say that even if it has been tried, it Maybe it's not sustainable. Maybe the YouTube video is the way to go for that one. Although having said that, Elsie Escobar's first podcast, what, almost 20 years ago was yoga. Oh, really? Okay. Which seems like it should be a video, but she was doing it in audio Hmm. form. Well, I do like yoga as audio because I think if you're a new practitioner or maybe even any practitioner who's been practicing for a while, it can get very distracting to look at the yoga bodies on screen and feel, well, my body is not doing the thing that it should be doing. That's true. And having the the audio guide could actually liberate you quite a bit to just focus on the feelings within your body instead of, does it look identical to the instructor? Do you know what? I love that. I love that so much because this year I bought, I think, two or three different fitness programs for my phone and the apps are not just prep, play, and go. Like I have to read and look at the vis- the, the not even visual. Yeah, it's visuals, but it's not vid- it's not motion videos. Mm-hmm. 
It's just pictures. I have to look at the pictures of people standing and doing the poses. And it's so just, I'm like, why? Why isn't this a video? Why isn't this? But that would be even better in audio because then it would just be telling you what to do with your arm, what to do with your your head, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Now this is making me think. <laughs> <laughs> well, and accessibility-wise, too, for people who are low vision or people who are blind, mm-hmm. audio is incredibly... Uh, yeah. liberating because it can give a lot of access to ideas, but also practical advice, knowledge, guidance, instructions to topics and, and whole areas, mm-hmm. bodies of knowledge that would otherwise be relegated to visual only or visual primary, right? Yeah. yeah. Very true. Yeah. Very true. Uh, but I do want to get to your amazing role as a facilitator of developing connections. You know, the word digital nomad or the term digital nomad, I don't know if that's still the most current. I like geopaths. I think that's a neat Mm -hmm. phrase. What does that stand for, geopaths? (laughs) Um, I just, the word expat, even though I technically have been one for 20 years, has such a negative, privileged uh, I don't get in touch with anything with the local culture kind of yeah. sounds like the British in Hong Kong. That's what I think when I hear expat. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. yeah. And and even in that stereotype, there's people who didn't didn't fit into that that uh, that behavior. Um, but so it, I just like I'd, I'll use it in shorthand, but I'm, it's not my favorite word ever. And I definitely didn't want it to taint the podcast. And so I was like, well we're of the world, which is all of us. It's not even just those of us that went abroad, but those of us that are touched by other cultures. Like we're just of the world. We are curious about the world. We want to know about the cultures and people in them. And so it's just geopaths. And I just kind of shoved it together. Um, Fun fact, it is an engineering term and I have been waiting for years to have legal problems, but so far, so far, so good. (laughs) I'll knock on wood for you as well. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. (laughs) I think it works and it seems fairly intuitive. I didn't know if it stood for something more extensive, but when I think about the word expats, yeah, it has more negative connotations. So geopats is, sounds more contemporary. It sounds more inclusive. How do you develop connections that last? How do you develop a community if you were to, let's say, speak to somebody who's leaving their country for the first time to live abroad and they mm-hmm. are f- afraid of losing the sense of community or connection. Or maybe they're not so much afraid as curious about, can I recreate that digitally? Can I recreate that virtually? What would you say about that? Oh, gosh. They're leaving their home country for the first time. Um, I'm much better with folks who... <laughs> are hitting snags after a few countries. Um, But for the first time, oh, am I totally honest? If I was totally honest, which I probably wouldn't be, I would say (laughs) you're never going to have those same connections anywhere else. You're going to be incredibly lonely and you're going to have to struggle everywhere you go to maintain any kind of local community. Good luck. (laughs) But I would never say that to someone (laughs) Because it's like telling someone at the beginning of puberty how awful those few years might be. It's like, nah, let's not do that. Let's say those folks who have braved several excursions, they've lived abroad in a few different countries, they have a feeling maybe it could be better. Maybe they're feeling like, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I have managed to make connections where I've gone. I can be friendly. I can meet the locals or, you know, stay in touch with people digitally, but I'm maybe not getting everything out of it that I could. Maybe I could be doing more. What are some Mm. pieces of advice you might have for geopaths or digital nomads, whatever term you prefer, Mm -hmm. um, for for people who are maybe midway through a longer series of, of travels? The one thing I did my first place that I've never done since intentionally is I tried to go completely, not completely local, but I tried to not talk to anybody who was not from that place. That's a lot of knots. I tried to only <laughs> have connections with locals, quote unquote locals, whether they were from that town or that city, but definitely that country. And I, it, it made me just, I was in such an isolated space by forcing myself to do that. And I learned pretty quickly that year that it was okay, if not the most healthiest thing to do mentally, to have local connections or local, local citizen connections, but also talk to the other expats. It's okay. It's all right to talk to people who understand where you're coming from. It's okay to speak the language that you're most fluent in. Like you don't have to go completely native as soon as you get to a place and only stay there the rest of the time you're there. It's, it's kind of a really hard thing to do. And I, I think it's probably one of the hard, one of the worst ways to transition into a culture. Um, some people do go the opposite way, like the expats we were talking about, where they don't have any local connection. They just go to all the foreigner places, and that's the other extreme. But definitely lead with your hobbies um, and be open to new hobbies. Like, for example, I love books. So everywhere I go, I'm looking for book clubs. I'm looking for like hiking groups. I'm looking for like things that people are doing mm-hmm. that in in English, unfortunately, because of my own language restrictions, but I'm looking for groups that are that are doing the things I like to do, and then I try to build community out of that from those people um, in those places, and then just be open to random people that you might meet also. But lead with your interests, or lead with interests that exist there, where you can go and do community events and meet people that way. If you're an extrovert, mm-hmm. if you're an introvert, I have no idea. <laughs> Fair enough. Speaking from experience, so uh, that's okay. (laughs) You did mention English, though, and I'm curious if, and maybe this is hard to even evaluate for you because you can't say that you you have your experience to go by here, but do you notice a lot of expats from other non-English speaking countries? Is that something that comes up much or are you tending to connect more with communities whose primary language is English just because of your own situation? Um, in the 20 years that I've been an expat, I've seen, it depends more on the place than on the time for, with my experiences. Um, there are certain countries that have, um, like for example, when I was in Taiwan, um, there were more, uh, North Americans than any other nationality. Oh, okay. uh, North Americans and South Africans. Interesting. Um, yeah. And, and, but in Japan, there were more... North Americans and there were certain flavors of Europeans. <laughs> and then like here in Romania, there's a huge mix from like Europe, somewhat the US. I'm trying to think of who else I've met so far. Those are the two biggest camps so far. But there is a big tech sector 
And I think I may be seeing folks from other countries as well, but I haven't talked to them. So I don't want to say people from these countries because I'd be going by how they look and that's kind of weird. So yeah, and it, but it, it depends. For a long time, I was also an English teacher. That's right. So, and in Vietnam, the things you could do, I was there for almost four years. The things you could do as a foreigner were like teach English or work for an NGO. It was very hard to even open or run your own business there. Okay. So I knew mostly those two groups of folks. And so it, it's hard to say. Yeah. It's hard to say. Uh, but English is generally a common language, even if folks aren't from a country where it's like the primary language. That makes sense. And English is regarded to a large degree as the business language of the world. So mm-hmm. even if people might not speak English much, there's a huge incentive for them to learn English if they want to become somebody who travels and lives abroad for extended periods of time because there's a chance, there's a good chance that the people they meet, English will be one of the languages spoken, maybe not perfectly fluently, but well enough to get by, I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm interested too about the impact of COVID in terms of your experience in new places, um, something we hear about the news a lot in North America is how the COVID era has reduced people's empathy and their openness and their ability to um, try new things, meet new people, travel even. Some people don't want to travel again. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like there's less openness in the places that you go or there's even sometimes maybe hostility that surprises you? that might not have existed before. And again, this is hard to say because you're going to countries maybe that you didn't visit before COVID too. So I realize that that's hard to evaluate. Yeah, that's almost impossible for me to say because I only had two months and I mean, I had vacationed in Europe before. That sounds weird. I had been on vacation in Europe before, but I, I had not lived, lived here until January of 2020. So I have two months of experience before everything turned over. So I don't really, I can't really compare. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. One of the reasons that I think held me back from traveling or living abroad as a younger person and even today is the access to health care. And now in Canada, of course, we have a healthcare system that's different than the United States. <sighs> Vastly different. Yeah. So Knowing that I have access to healthcare here at home is is really fundamental, mm-hmm. and especially after going through a complicated procedure or surgery, I'm curious if this is something you talk about in the community with expats who maybe are go- undergoing a health scare or a struggle that they don't have access to the healthcare that they need in that particular region. Is it fairly normal to travel to another country to get the healthcare access that you want? Or no, I I don't know anybody that doesn't have access to good healthcare. Um, no, the places I've lived, being an American, the places I've lived outside the U.S. generally have better healthcare, more affordable healthcare, even without insurance than I would have in the U.S., even with a full time job. Wow. Okay. So for me, and for a lot of my uh, American friends, our healthcare has been significantly better being outside of the U.S., unfortunately. Um, now, for like folks I've known from other countries that have better healthcare, I can't really speak, I don't, I don't know, I can't speak to that, but um, 
the vast, other than the past three years, most of my time overseas have been with a local company Mm -hmm. on a contract with health insurance. So I've never really, I mean, I've had awkward situations sometimes (laughs) with culturally in a doctor's office, but I've never been in a place where I couldn't get medical care. Um, And I don't really know. um, That's not an issue. It sounds like for most most people in, in the community that you communicate with online or, you know. I, I, I yeah. mean, there's always things that might be better if you're, again, if your home country's medical system is better or if you need to have a lot of care, uh, a lot of people taking care of you at home while you're going through treatments, then maybe you need to mm-hmm. be uh, around a closer-knit community, that kind of thing. But as far as medical care, I mean, it varies from country to country, city to small town. It's it's hard to say in the world this uh, exists but I the thing is okay and I don't think I knew this when I went overseas to uh, developing countries is that a lot of times there's public and private health care and the private health care in a lot of places that you would think oh they're not going to have good health care because their economy is not strong enough they do because a lot of their population goes overseas gets educated or goes to good uh, medical training in the country and they have that private health care system in the country too so a lot of times there is good medical care even if the economy doesn't seem to be thriving so there's always an option or at least you found that to be the case when you when you needed health care it wasn't it wasn't something that you ever had to go without. That's great. No. That's great. No. In fact, I got LASIK surgery in Taiwan. Amazing. In 2004. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And it went well. Everything, uh, you recovered well. You're happy with the procedure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Didn't need reading glasses for a good 12 years, which is amazing considering how old I was when I got it done. <laughs> I should have been on glasses. I think they said you might have 10 years. And I still don't have prescription glasses. Just simple little readers, like 1.5. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I want to turn to thinking about how you've built a community. I know maybe you don't always consider it in the same context. And like you've mentioned a few examples where it's not necessarily a planned, deliberate action. But what are some other lessons that you've learned along the way or interesting observations even? Um, I heard someone talk about the discomfort of being around others recently, and it really resonated with me because a lot of times we'll not want to be in groups where there's someone that we're not necessarily connecting well with. Mm -hmm. And she was talking about how we used to not really have a choice. Like, (laughs) here's your local community. These are the people you're going to live around. You have to be comfortable with the discomfort. And we've we've gone away from that in a way that I think makes it a little bit hard to be around others. And I think one of the things I've learned in my in-person and online communities is that you're not necessarily going to really adore everybody who comes into those spaces. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. We're totally okay with that. We've done that probably the entire time we've been humans. Um, But we somehow, I think we got it in our heads that we have to like everybody that's around us. And like is such a weird term in some ways. (laughs) Because I've noticed that 
there'll be like when I'll start a new, like when I used to work at an actual company, when I would start a new job, there would always be one person. I'd be like, oh man, they really grade my nerves. Just one person, always one. (laughs) And eventually over time, I would actually start to like different parts of them. Then we would become friends. And I was like, okay, is it just a matter of time? Like, do I just need to be around someone for a period of time before there's a connection between us? Is that, is it the time factor or do I really truly not like them or do I just get used to them like a pair of uncomfortable shoes? Horrible analogy, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I think, I think sitting with that discomfort is my point is that you're not always going to like the people around you, but I think we should be decent to each other and try to help each other because we're there and we're, we're, we're all we've got. That sounds mm-hmm. tragic. <laughs> well, no, I think it's rather poignant. And we do have a culture to some extent that encourages us to remove toxic people from our lives and only spend time with people who lift you up and make you feel good. And I understand mm-hmm. why that is a popular message because it feels good. Right, we we want to be around people who validate who we are as we are, but you bring up a really important point that throughout human civilization and experience, throughout all of existence, survival depends on our ability to collaborate, cooperate, get along. And if you like someone, great, that probably helps. And if you can learn to like someone, that's even better because you're going to open yeah. up. But I do wonder if there's an adaptive quality there that we've become weaker through just avoidance. So we, we've we said, you know, mm-hmm. I'm only going to go to places where the people get me. I'm only going to spend time with people who uplift me, make me feel good. And certainly with COVID, we don't have to go to the office. I, I work from a remote location all the time. So I don't necessarily spend time with somebody next to me who chews gum really loud all day. And maybe that would have annoyed me. <laughs> And so the little quirks and idiosyncrasies of personality just aren't there to grate on me. However, Mm -hmm. I certainly notice if I have to be in a group, how quickly irritating qualities surface. And I think, oh, I just, I'm just going to avoid so-and-so. And then I question it because I think, yeah, but if I avoid them, let's say I don't go to to an event because I've decided that, well, so-and-so is going to be there and that's just going to harsh my mellow. I just don't like that. Well, what else am I missing out on? I'm going to miss out connecting with all the other people. And then on a more sensitive note, maybe this person annoys me because there's a quality in them that reminds me of me. (laughs) Yep. I was, I was, I was almost going to say that when I was talking and I was like, oh gosh, how much am I going to tell about myself? Yeah. (laughs) I I love the stories about yourself and some of your recent episodes, especially about, you know, being a striver and, and trying to find your place and that level of vulnerability that you shared, I think it really opens up a conversation to being able to relate and it's okay to have things that we're not good at or obstacles or relationship challenges. And I I do kind of wonder if the digital space, whatever it may be, whether it's meeting people for video chats or group chats online just in a forum, do you think sometimes that makes it easier 
you know, to, to the example I, I had a few mm-hmm. moments ago, you're not hearing their annoying gum chewing or, you know, there's all kinds of things people can do, but you can kind of get past those barriers because they just aren't in the physical space, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe, but I also feel like in places where people don't know each other first, I think it's also easier for people to be horrible to each other, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's no secret to anybody hearing this. <laughs> They've all experienced something online, I'm sure, that was like, where did that come from? I don't even know that person. But yeah, no, the online space is very weird. And I, I not that I'll be around for this, but it'd be interesting like, to look 100 years back towards this early part of the internet and look at like how it evolved because <laughs> I oh sometimes I look at what we do online and like you would never do that face to face why are you acting like this <laughs> it's bizarre it really is it is yeah. it truly is yeah. and I'm sure we'll grow out of it but oh man it's weird <laughs> it's not in a good place right now so I hope we grow out of it soon <laughs> ditto uh, you have a strong ability to help people get their stories out and, and their voices out in podcast format. What's your best advice to anyone who's ready to do that and they want to elevate their podcast? Maybe they've they've already created a podcast, they have a fair number of episodes, but they're ready to elevate. What's your advice there? Um, one, try to engage with your audience not necessarily to say, is it good, is it bad, but what, like try to, try to, it's so hard with podcasting, but try to build connections with your audience so that you can ask them, so that they'll have the ability to tell you when something really strikes a chord. Mm-hmm. Like build that bridge so that when there are those moments that are really powerful with them, that they will reach out, they will know how to reach out to tell you, wow. That, that was amazing, that that thing. And maybe lean in a little bit more to that thing. Maybe it's a matter of niching down more or maybe it's a matter of changing the format or maybe it's a matter of, let's be honest, cleaning up the audio. Maybe it's a matter of, of taking more out of the story to make it more focused. Like there's, there's things that people will tell you if you give them pathways to communicate. Now, it's not super easy with podcasting to get listener feedback because it's super messy structurally. Um, But it can be done. (laughs) So try to build those early on and keep reminding people how they can contact you just to let you know what they think. Uh, If they have similar experiences, like keep tossing out those call to actions with like one question to try to get them to answer it to let you know. Are there any recent episodes of podcasts that surprised or delighted you that made you want to follow up with the podcaster and and let them know that they struck a chord with you. I do this way too much. (laughs) (laughs) I am such a geek. I literally will like spend half an hour online finding how to contact a podcaster and I'll be like, I have to tell you how much this changed my life. It sometimes and sometimes not (laughs) because it's, yeah, it can be a bit much because I don't really have a strong privacy filter. So when I say this resonated with me, I probably tell too many details. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but you just really touched me and I had to tell you. Um, Do I have any recently? Um, Yes. 
my, I'm actually looking at my phone to look at recent episodes that I've listened to. And Maya from Proud Stutter did an episode with her father asking him about his memories of her stuttering as a child. Wow. And that, yeah, from the beginning of the episode, not because the episode was sad, but from the beginning of the episode, the carefulness and the playfulness that he answered her questions made me cry because there was such love there. Oh. And such acceptance there from the beginning for him. And I was just like, oh my gosh, that's, that's beautiful. Yes, more of that, please. <laughs> Um, and I did let her know <laughs> and I'm going to sound like such a sad person when I say this, but Breathing Wind mm-hmm. is a podcast about grief and grieving and their season finale was one of the most oh, thoughtful and cohesive season wrap-ups or even any piece of like art wrap-ups that I've I've heard. Like it was so crafted and with heart. Wow. And I I think I was actually crying when I left Sarah a message about that. I was like, oh my gosh, that was the most beautiful thing ever. Yeah. Um, But it's just, it's so beautiful. Um, And I actually started listening to her podcast one episode before the season finale. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and now I'm listening to all of the episodes in this season. But yeah, there's so many, there's so many amazing podcasts out there that cover so many topics. Yeah. And really long lasting content that you could go back Mm -hmm. for years, I have the feeling, and listen to series or episodes that you missed out on just because of the sheer volume of what is available. It's incredible for sure. It really is. Yeah. It really is. And that's why I'm kind of excited by, kind of, I am excited by Evo Terra's new audio drama, uh, audio drama newsletter called The End, because he's only covering audio dramas that have finished. So he's helping them stay in our ears, which I think is really important because people think like, well, for me too, when a new episode doesn't come up, I forget that there are other episodes of a podcast. Yeah, And I wish there was more of a reminder feature that you could put in some apps. And so by by highlighting the ones that are finished, I think he's keeping those alive, which I hmm. think is a really neat thing. And I think we need that for other kinds of podcasts as well. Yeah, thanks for sharing those recommendations. I know I want to check them out now. So <laughs> I'm always looking for, for a new podcast to listen to. And it's clear that you're right when you describe yourself as a multi-passionate creative. You have so much heart and enthusiasm for what you do, and that comes through in our, in our conversation. What have you not yet tried that you're excited to pursue? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, okay, so somebody... Okay, for their Global Podcast Editors community, we have a new automated intro, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have music. And so I've been playing with the idea of, because uh, I saw a video that you could actually like make music in Reaper, which is one of the DAWs I use. So I've been playing with the idea. I've been trying to work up the time mm-hmm. and the energy <laughs> to, and to, and to get a sound in my mind before I touch the keyboard. But I kind of want to make the music to go with her automation. Cool. And so I've been playing with that. Because I've been using other people's music for six years. And I'm like, ah, I feel like for intros and outros, there isn't that much of a creative moment. So I can, I can get something of mine out. I can, I can do that. I can create sounds. 
that would be good for 20 seconds, right? So I feel like I want to do that. Yeah, that's fun. I would like to hear the sounds. (laughs) (laughs) And related to that, what's next for you? Do you have any big projects you're willing to tease? So in 2023... um, I have this sense that not only is my geographical hopping is going to slow down, but my work-life balance is going to get better. Like I'm going to get, I'm going to be doing less work and I'm going to be able to do more creative stuff. So my community, my global podcast editors community is going to be tighter and stronger and yet and, and kind of help itself so I won't need to be in there as much. And then I'm going to get to go back and do more stuff, not just with Geopats, but I, I've been working on a project. That it, actually, what Geopats started out as changed after a few months, and I took those episodes down, and I've been trying to work on them for years. Mm. But it's a complicated project, and... It's very time consuming. So I'm hoping I can go back to that and finally get it out into its own space. Mm-hmm. But it's um it's very time consuming. And the beginning audio for the first 60 episodes is horrible. Oh. And I have to get comfortable with that atrocity. <laughs> oh. You can't change it? Uh I can do some cleanup on it, but it, it's very time dependent yeah. like for what happened in them. So I can't really go back and re-record them because then it'll be like acting and what happened at that point. And it just, it's, it yeah. wouldn't fit the mood. So it'll have to be one of those, it'll get better with time folks to stick with it kind of projects. Well, yeah, I'm so happy that you joined me today for a conversation. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? <sighs> No, you've made me think so much that I can't, I can't think of anything else. No, in a good way, in a very, very good way. No, I've loved the, the questions that you've asked and the, the things that we've talked about. Um, I can't think of anything. That's all good. I, that means I did my job. So um, I'm happy to make people think and, and in a good way. I'm going to include certainly links to Geopats and, and your podcast in the show notes um, we've talked about it a few times, so if anyone's just listening, you can quickly type that into wherever you like to listen to podcasts, and it will pop up. In fact, if you do a search of Steph Fuccio's name, you will see she's on a number of other podcasts as a guest, and I highly recommend listening to those as well. I really enjoyed your interview with Matt Medeiros, and just your perspective. You have a very distinctive view on podcasts and editing thank you so much for coming on the podcast Steph it's been a real honor to have you join us today thank you I've enjoyed this so much if you love access ideas we'd love for you to subscribe rate and review us on Podchaser via the link in our show notes or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts tell your friends about the podcast too Until next time, thanks for listening to Access Ideas.